Chapter thirty seven of Adam Bede. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jack Farrell. Adam Bede. Chapter thirty seven. The Journey in Despair. Hetty was too ill through the rest of that day for any questions to be addressed to her, too ill even to think with any distinctness of the evils that were to come. She only felt that all her hope was crushed, and that instead of having found a refuge she had only reached the borders of a new wilderness where no goal lay before her. The sensations of bodily sickness in a comfortable bed and with the tendance of the good-natured landlady made a sort of respite for her, such a respite as there is in the faint weariness which obliges a man to throw himself on the sand instead of toiling onward under the scorching sun. But when sleep and rest brought back the strength necessary for the keenness of mental suffering, when she lay the next morning looking at the growing light, which was like a cruel taskmaster, returning to urge from her a fresh round of hated, hopeless labor, she began to think what course she must take to remember that all her money was gone to look at the prospect of further wandering among strangers with the new clearness shed on it by the experience of her journey to Windsor. But which way should she turn? It was impossible for her to enter into any service, even if she could obtain it. There was nothing but immediate beggary before her. She thought of a young woman who had been found against the church wall of Hayslope one Sunday, nearly dead with cold and hunger, a tiny infant in her arms. The woman was rescued and taken to the parish. The parish! You can perhaps hardly understand the effect of that word on a mind like Hetty's, brought up among people who were somewhat hard in their feelings even towards poverty, who lived among the fields and had little pity for wanton rags as a cruel inevitable fate such as they sometimes seem in cities, but held them a mark of idleness and vice and it was idleness and vice that brought burthens on the parish. To Hetty the parish was next to the prison in obloquy, and to ask anything of strangers, to beg, lay in the same far-off hideous region of intolerable shame that Hetty had all her life thought it impossible she could ever come near. But now the remembrance of that wretched woman whom she had seen herself on her way from church, being carried into Joshua Rand's, came back upon her with the new terrible sense that there was very little now to divide her from the same lot, and the dread of bodily hardship mingles with the dread of shame, for Hetty had the luxurious nature of a round, soft-coated pet animal. How she yearned to be back in her safe home again, cherished and cared for as she had always been! Her aunt's scolding about trifles would have been music to her ears now. She longed for it. She used to hear it in a time when she had only trifles to hide. Could she be the same Hetty that used to make up the butter in the dairy with the guldrous roses peeping in at the window? She, a runaway, whom her friends would not open their doors to again, lying in this strange bed, with the knowledge that she had no money to pay for what she received, and must offer these strangers some of the clothes in her basket. It was then she thought of her locket and earrings and seeing her pocket near she reached it and spread the contents on the bed before her. 
There were the locket and earrings and the little velvet-lined boxes, and with them there was a beautiful silver thimble which Adam had brought her, the words, Remember me, making the ornament of the border, a steel purse with her one shilling in it, and a small red leather case fastening with a strap. Those beautiful little earrings, with their delicate pearls and garnet, that she had tried in her ears with such longing in the bright sunshine on the thirtieth of July. She had no longing to put them in her ears now. Her head, with its dark rings of hair, lay back languidly on the pillow, and the sadness that rested above her brow and eyes was something too hard for regretful memory. Yet she put her hands up to her ears. It was because there were some thin gold rings in them, which were also worth a little money. Yes, she could surely get some money for her ornaments. Those Arthur had given her must have cost a great deal of money. The landlord and the landlady had been good to her. Perhaps they would help her get the money for these things. But this money would not keep her long. What should she do when it was gone? Where should she go? The horrible thought of want and beggary drove her once to think she would go back to her uncle and aunt and ask them to forgive her and have pity on her. But she shrank from that idea again, as she might have shrunk from scorching metal. She could never endure the shame before her uncle and aunt, before Mary Burge and the servants at the chase, and the people at Broxton, and everybody who knew her. They should never know what had happened to her. What could she do? She would go away from Windsor, travel again as she had done the last week, and get among the flat green fields with the high hedges round them, where nobody could see her or know her, and there, perhaps, when there was nothing else she could do, she could get courage to drown herself in some pond like that in the Scantlands. Yes, she would get away from Windsor as soon as possible. She didn't like these people at the inn to know about her, to know that she had come to look for Captain Donnithorne, she must think of some reason to tell them why she had asked for him. With this thought she began to put the things back into her pocket, meaning to get up and dress before the landlady came to her. She had her hand on the red leather case, when it occurred to her that there might be something in this case which she had forgotten, something worth selling, for without knowing what she should do with her life she craved the means of living as long as possible, and when we desire eagerly to find something, we are apt to search for it in hopeless places. No, there was nothing but the common needles and pins and dried tulip petals between the paper leaves where she had written down her little money accounts. But on one of these leaves there was a name, which often, as she had seen it before, now flashed on Hetty's mind like a newly discovered message. The name was Dinah Morris Snowfield. There was a text written above it, as well as the name, by Dinah's own hand with a little pencil, one evening that they were sitting together, and Hetty happened to have the red case lying open before her. Hetty did not read the text now. She was only arrested by the name. Now, for the first time, she remembered without indifference the affectionate kindness Dinah had shown her and those words of Dinah in the bedchamber, that Hetty must think of her as a friend in trouble. Suppose she were to go to Dinah and ask her to help. Dinah did not think about things as other people did. She was a mystery to Hetty, but Hetty knew she was always kind. 
She couldn't imagine Dinah's face turning away from her in dark reproof or scorn, Dinah's voice willingly speaking ill of her, or rejoicing in her misery as a punishment. Dinah did not seem to belong to that world of Hetty's, whose glance she dreaded like scorching fire. But even to her Hetty shrank from beseeching and confession. She could not prevail on herself to say, I will go to Dinah. She only thought of that as a possible alternative if she had not courage for death. The good landlady was amazed when she saw Hetty come downstairs soon after herself, neatly dressed and looking resolutely self-possessed. Hetty told her that she was quite well this morning. She had only been very tired and overcome with her journey, for she had come a long way to ask about her brother, who had run away, and they thought he was gone for a soldier, and Captain Donnithorne might know, for he had been very kind to her brother once. It was a lame story, and the landlady looked doubtfully at Hetty as she told it, but there was a resolute air of self-reliance about her this morning, so different from the helpless prostration of yesterday, that the landlady hardly knew how to make a remark that might seem like prying into other people's affairs. She only invited her to sit down to breakfast with them, and in the course of it Hetty brought out her earrings and locket, and asked the landlord if he could help her to get money for them. Her journey, she said, had cost her much more than she expected, and now she had no money to get back to her friends, which she wanted to do at once. It was not the first time the landlady had seen the ornaments, for she had examined the contents of Hetty's pocket yesterday, and she and her husband had discussed the fact of a country girl having these beautiful things, with a stronger conviction than ever that Hetty had been miserably deluded by the fine young officer. "'Well,' said the landlord, when Hetty had spread the precious trifles before him, "'we might take em to the jeweller's shop, for there's one not far off. But, Lord bless ye, they wouldn't give you a quarter of what the things are worth. And you wouldn't like to part with em he added, looking at her inquiringly. "'Oh, I don't mind,' said Hetty hastily, "'so as I can get money to go back.' "'And they might think the things were stolen, as you wanted to sell em he went on. "'For it isn't usual for a young woman like you to have fine jewellery like that.' The blood rushed to Hetty's face with anger. "'I belong to respectable folks,' she said. "'I'm not a thief.' "'No, that you aren't, I'll be bound,' said the landlady. "'And you'd no call to say that,' looking indignantly at her husband. "'The things were give to her. That's plain enough to be seen.' "'I didn't mean as I thought so,' said the husband, apologetically. "'But I said it was what the jeweller might think, and so he wouldn't be offering much money for him.' "'Well,' said the wife, "'suppose you were to advance some money on the things yourself, and then if she liked to redeem them when she got home she could. But if we heard nothing from her after two months we might do as we liked with them.' "'I will not say—' that in this accommodating proposition the landlady had no regard whatever to the possible reward of her good nature in the ultimate possession of the locket and earrings indeed the effect they would have in that case on the mind of the grocer's wife had presented itself with remarkable vividness to her rapid imagination the landlord took up the ornaments and pushed out his lips in a meditative manner he wished hetty well doubtless but pray how many of your well-wishers would decline to make a little gain out of you 
Your landlady is sincerely affected at parting with you, respects you highly, and will really rejoice if anyone else is generous to you. But at the same time she hands you a bill by which she gains as high a percentage as possible. "'How much money do you want to get home with, young lady?' said the well-wisher at length. Three guineas,' answered Hetty, fixing on the sum she set out with, for want of any other standard, and afraid of asking too much. "'Well, I've no objections to advance you three guineas,' said the landlord. "'And if you like to send it me back and get the jewellery again, you can, you know. The green man isn't going to run away.' "'Oh, yes, I'll be very glad if you'll give me that,' said Hetty, relieved at the thought that she would not have to go to the jewellers and be stared at and questioned. "'But if you want the things again, you'll write before long,' said the landlady, "'because when two months are up we shall make up our minds as you don't want em. "'Yes,' said Hetty, indifferently. The husband and wife were equally content with this arrangement. The husband thought, if the ornaments were not redeemed, he could make a good thing of it by taking them to London and selling them. The wife thought she would coax the good man into letting her keep them. And they were accommodating Hetty, poor thing, a pretty respectable-looking young woman, apparently in a sad case. They declined to take anything for her food and bed. She was quite welcome. And at eleven o'clock Hetty said good-bye to them with the same quiet, resolute air she had worn all the morning, mounting the coach that was to take her twenty miles back along the way she had come. There is a strength of self-possession, which is the sign that the last hope has departed. Despair no more leans on others than perfect contentment, and in despair pride ceases to be counteracted by the sense of dependence. Hetty felt that no one could deliver her from the evils that would make life hateful to her, and no one, she said to herself, should ever know her misery and humiliation. No, she would not confess even to Dinah. She would wander out of sight and drown herself where her body would never be found, and no one should know what had become of her. When she got off this coach she began to walk again, and take cheap rides in carts and get cheap meals, going on and on, without distinct purpose, yet strangely by some fascination taking the way she had come though she was determined not to go back to her own country. Perhaps it was because she had fixed her mind on the grassy Warwickshire fields with the bushy tree-studded hedgerows that made a hiding-place even in this leafless season. She went more slowly than she came, often getting over the stiles and sitting for hours under the hedgerows, looking before her with blank, beautiful eyes, fancying herself at the edge of a hidden pool, low down, like that in the scantlands, wondering if it were very painful to be drowned, and if there would be anything worse after death than that which she dreaded in life. Religious doctrines had taken no hold on Hetty's mind. She was one of those numerous people who had godfathers and godmothers learned their catechism, been confirmed, and gone to church every Sunday, and yet, for any practical result of strength in life or trust in death, have never appropriated a single Christian idea or Christian feeling. You would misunderstand her thoughts during those wretched days if you imagined that they were influenced either by religious fears or religious hopes. She chose to go to Stratford-on-Avon again, where she had gone before by mistake, for she remembered some grassy fields on her former way towards it, fields among which she thought she might find just the sort of pool she had in her mind. Yet she took care of her money still, she carried her basket, death still seemed a long way off, 
and life was so strong in her. She craved food and rest. She hastened towards them at the very moment she was picturing to herself the bank from which she would leap towards death. It was already five days since she had left Windsor, for she had wandered about, always avoiding speech or questioning looks, and recovering her air of proud self-dependence whenever she was under observation, choosing her decent lodging at night, and dressing herself neatly in the morning, and setting off on her way steadily, or remaining under shelter if it rained, as if she had a happy life to cherish. And yet, even in her most self-conscious moments, the face was sadly different from that which had smiled at itself in the old speckled glass, or smiled at others when they glanced at it admiringly. A hard and even fierce look had come into the eyes, though the lashes were as long as ever, and they had all their dark brightness. And the cheek was never dimpled with smiles now. It was the same rounded, pouting, childish prettiness, but with all love and belief in love departed from it, the sadder for its beauty, like that wondrous Medusa face with the passionate, passionless lips. At last she was among the fields she had been dreaming of, on a long, narrow pathway leading towards a wood. If there should be a pool in that wood, it would be better hidden than one in the fields. No, it was not a wood, only a wild break, where there had once been gravel pits, leaving mounds and hollows studded with brushwood and small trees. She roamed up and down, thinking there was perhaps a pool in every hollow before she came to it, till her limbs were weary and she sat down to rest. The afternoon was far advanced, and the leaden sky was darkening, as if the sun were setting behind it. After a little while Hetty started up again, feeling that darkness would soon come on, and she must put off finding the pool till tomorrow, and make her way to some shelter for the night. She had quite lost her way in the fields, and might as well go in one direction as another for aught she knew. She walked through field after field, and no village, no house was in sight. But there, at the corner of this pasture, there was a break in the hedges, the land seemed to dip down a little, and two trees leaned towards each other across the opening. Hetty's heart gave a great beat as she thought there must be a pool there. She walked towards it heavily over the tufted grass with pale lips and a sense of trembling. It was as if the thing were come in spite of herself, instead of being the object of her search. There it was black under the darkening sky, no motion, no sound near. She set down her basket and then sank down herself on the grass, trembling. The pool had its wintry depth now. By the time it got shallow, as she remembered the pools did at Hayslope in the summer, no one could find out that it was her body. But then there was her basket. She must hide that, too. She must throw it into the water, make it heavy with stones first, and then throw it in. She got up to look about for stones, and soon brought five or six, which she laid down beside her basket, and then sat down again. There was no need to hurry. There was all the night to drown herself in. She sat leaning her elbow on the basket. She was weary, hungry. There were some buns in her basket, three which she had supplied herself with at the place where she ate her dinner. She took them out now, and ate them eagerly, and then sat still again, 
looking at the pool. The soothed sensation that came over her from the satisfaction of her hunger and this fixed dreamy attitude brought on drowsiness, and presently her head sank down on her knees. She was fast asleep. When she awoke it was deep night, and she felt chill. She was frightened at this darkness, frightened at the long night before her. If she could but throw herself into the water. No, not yet. She began to walk about that she might get warm again, as if she would have more resolution then. Oh, how long the time was in that darkness! The bright hearth and the warmth and the voices of home, the secure uprising and lying down, the familiar fields, the familiar people, the Sundays and holidays with their simple joys of dress and feasting, all the sweets of her young life rushed before her now she seemed to be stretching her arms towards them across a great gulf. She set her teeth when she thought of Arthur. She cursed him without knowing what her cursing would do. She wished he too might know desolation and cold and a life of shame that he dared not end by death. The horror of this cold and darkness and solitude out of all human reach became greater every long minute. It was almost as if she were dead already, and knew that she was dead, and longed to get back to life again. But no, she was alive still, she had not taken the dreadful leap. She felt a strange contradictory wretchedness and exultation, wretchedness that she did not dare to face death, exultation that she was still in life, that she might yet know light and warmth again. She walked backwards and forwards to warm herself, beginning to discern something of the objects around her as her eyes became accustomed to the night, the darker line of the hedge, the rapid motion of some living creature, perhaps a field mouse, rushing across the grass. She no longer felt as if the darkness hedged her in. She thought she could walk back across the field and get over the stile, and then, in the very next field, she thought she remembered there was a hovel of firs near a sheepfold. If she could get into that hovel she would be warmer, she could pass the night there, for that was what Alec did at Hayslope in lambing time. The thought of this hovel brought the energy of a new hope. She took up her basket and walked across the field, but it was some time before she got in the right direction for the stile. The exercise and the occupation of finding the stile were a stimulus to her, however, and lighten the horror of the darkness and solitude. There were sheep in the next field, and she startled a group as she set down her basket and got over the stile, and the sound of their movement comforted her, for it assured her that her impression was right. This was the field where she had seen the hovel, for it was the field where the sheep were. Right on along the path, and she would get to it. She reached the opposite gate and felt her way along the rails and the rails of the sheepfold till her hand encountered the pricking of the gorsy wall. Delicious sensation! She had found the shelter. She groped her way, touching the prickly gorse to the door, and pushed it open. It was an ill-smelling close place, but warm, and there was straw on the ground. Hetty sank down on the straw with a sense of escape tears came. She had never shed tears before she left Windsor. 
tears and sobs of hysterical joy that she had still hold of life, that she was still on the familiar earth with the sheep near her. The very consciousness of her own limbs was a delight to her. She turned up her sleeves and kissed her arms with the passionate love of life. Soon warmth and weariness lulled her in the midst of her sobs, and she fell continually into dozing, fancying herself at the brink of the pool again, fancying that she had jumped into the water, and then awaking with a start, and wondering where she was. But at last deep, dreamless sleep came. Her head, guarded by her bonnet, found a pillow against the gorsy wall, and the poor soul, driven to and fro between two equal terrors, found the one relief that was possible to it, the relief of unconsciousness. Alas, that relief seems to end the moment it has begun. It seemed to Hetty as if those dozing dreams had only passed into another dream, that she was in the hovel and her aunt was standing over her with the candle in her hand. She trembled under her aunt's glance and opened her eyes. There was no candle, but there was light in the hovel, the light of early morning through the open door, and there was a face looking down on her. But it was an unknown face belonging to an elderly man in a smock-frock. "'Why, what do you do here, young woman?' the man said roughly. Hetty trembled still worse under this real fear and shame that she had done in her momentary dream under her aunt's glance. She felt that she was like a beggar already, found sleeping in that place, but in spite of her trembling, she was so eager to account to the man for her presence here that she found words at once. "'I lost my way,' she said. "'I'm travelling northward, and I got away from the road into the fields and was overtaken by the dark. Will you tell me the way to the nearest village?' She got up as she was speaking and put her hands to her bonnet to adjust it and then laid hold of her basket. The man looked at her with a slow, bovine gaze without giving her any answer for some seconds. Then he turned away and walked towards the door of the hovel. But it was not till he got there that he stood still, and turning his shoulder half round towards her, said, "'Ah, I can show you the way to Norton, if you like. But what do you do getting out of the high road?' he added with a tone of gruff reproof. "'You'll be getting into mischief.' if you don't mind. "'Yes,' said Hetty, "'I won't do it again. I'll keep in the road, and if you'll be so good as to show me how to get to it.' "'Why don't you keep where there's finger posses and folks to ask the way on?' the man said still more gruffly. "'Anybody'd think you was a wild woman and look at you.' Hetty was frightened at this gruff old man, and still more at his last suggestion that she looked like a wild woman. As she followed him out of the hovel, she thought she would give him sixpence for telling her the way, and then he would not suppose she was wild. As he stopped to point out the road to her, she put her hand in her pocket to get the sixpence ready, and when he was turning away, without saying good morning, she held it out to him and said, "'Thank you. Will you please to take something for your trouble?' He looked slowly at the sixpence, and then said, "'I want none of your money. You had better take care of it else you'll get it stool from you if you go traipsin' about in the fields like a mad woman of that way." The man left her without further speech, and Hetty held on her way, 
Another day had risen, and she must wander on. It was no use to think of drowning herself. She could not do it, at least while she had money left to buy food and strength to journey on. But the incident on her waking this morning heightened her dread of that time when her money would be all gone. She would have to sell her basket and clothes then, and she would really look like a beggar or a wild woman, as the man had said. The passionate joy in life that she had felt in the night after escaping from the brink of the black cold death in the pool was gone now. Life now, by the morning light, with the impression of that man's hard wondering look at her, was as full of dread as death. It was worse. It was a dread to which she felt chained, from which she shrank and shrank, as she did from the black pool, and yet could find no refuge from it. She took out her money from her purse, and looked at it. She had still two-and-twenty shillings. It would serve her for many days more, or it would help her to get on faster to Stonyshire, within reach of Dinah. The thought of Dinah urged itself more strongly now, since the experience of the night had driven her shuddering imagination away from the pools. If it had been only going to Dinah, if nobody besides Dinah would ever know, Hetty could have made up her mind to go to her. The soft voice, the pitying eyes would have drawn her, but afterwards the other people must know, and she could no more rush on that shame than she could rush on death. She must wander on and on, and wait for a lower depth of despair to give her courage. Perhaps death would have come to her, for she was getting less and less able to bear the day's weariness, and yet such is the strange action of our souls, drawing us by a lurking desire towards the very ends we dread. Hetty, when she set out again from Norton, asked the straightest road northwards towards Stonyshire, and kept it all that day. Poor, wandering Hetty, with the rounded childish face, and the hard, unloving, despairing soul looking out of it, with the narrow heart and narrow thoughts, no room in them for any sorrows but her own, and tasting that sorrow with the more intense bitterness. My heart bleeds for her as I can see her toiling along on her weary feet, or seated in a cart, with her eyes fixed vacantly on the road before her, never thinking or caring whither it tends, till hunger comes and makes her desire that a village may be near. What will be the end? the end of her objectless wandering, apart from all love, caring for human beings only through her pride, clinging to life only as the hunted, wounded brute clings to it. God preserve you and me from being the beginners of such misery. End of chapter 37